0: Hey y'all, welcome to the third episode of the APAC podcast. So as always, I'm LJ, your historian, I'm your host.
1: I'm Chris, uh, I'm, pro- I'm used to be a programming chair, now I'm gone, but yeah.
2: <laughs> I'm Lauren, pronoun she, her. I'm currently your
3: APAC president. I'm Sarah, pronoun she, her, hers. Um, I am the current VP.
0: So tonight, lined up, thanks to Chris, um, we have Grace Newton, and she's going to like give her experiences of being an adoptee, and then we're just going to go from there. So Chris, I'll hand it off to you.
1: Yeah, awesome. Oh, hey, hey, Grace, uh, welcome to APACT. Uh, this is our uh, usual, uh, we usually have a cast of different people, but thanks for being here today. Um, I know it's been crazy this year, but um, thanks for taking the time. So I just wanted to ask a couple of things, like, can you just introduce yourself, how, where, where do you work at as an Asian adoptee uh, background? And uh, I know you work with other Asian adoptees as well. So some things like that.
2: Okay, thank you so much for having me. Um, like you mentioned, my name is Grace Newton, and I'm currently a master's of social work student at the Brown School at Washington University in St. Louis. Um, for School. I currently am a research fellow and I'm looking at um, research on child maltreatment domestically. Um, And so that's been really interesting. And my practicum experience last semester was um, with the Department of Social Services, um, children's division. And so I have a lot of research um, and personal experience in the international adoption Um, world. But it's been nice to get um, a lens into the domestic and public side um, of adoption as well. Uh, In terms of my international adoption experience, I was adopted from China when I was three years old. So I've got um, that lived experience of being an adoptee and being very involved in adoptee and adoption communities um, in my personal life. And then academically, I um, took a class at, when I was an undergrad at McAllister College on transracial and transnational adoption. And that class really was the catalyst that um, sparked my work in the community. And I also credit uh, the, just the location of my college for a lot of my work uh, because I was in Minnesota, which has the highest number of adoptees per capita um, in the U.S. And so I just had a lot of uh, adoptees and interesting adoption like, work available to me. And then professionally, um, at uh, my undergrad, I started uh, the Transracial and Transnational Adoptee Identity Collective with some other students, and I've led uh, some teen adoptee groups. um, And I am a part of CON, the Korean Adoptee and Adoptive Family Network Conference. I Um, sit on their advisory council right now and then I also write about adoption and my experiences as an Asian American woman adoptee um, and the intersections of like power, privilege, um, money, race uh, in the adoption system uh, on my blog which is called Red Thread Broken Um, and so I sometimes write on some other blogs and um, I've written um in a couple of anthologies, and sometimes talk to people like you.
1: <laughs> right. Um, I actually read uh, quite a lot of your blog onto like Red Bend and Broken In, because um, uh, my friend recommended me because I was looking for a speaker to uh, come for the uh, Adopting Month uh, this uh, this month. And uh, did that uh, like starting the uh, blog was like any reason, any particular reason, or did you um, or did you like follow the trend, or was there any particular reason for it? Yeah.
2: Yeah, um, I started my blog in 2013, and I started it the summer after I had taken that class on adoption. Um, I took the class on transracial and transnational adoption my first year of undergrad, and it was a really, uh, really emotional experience for me. Um, Academically, I just remember feeling very stretched because... um, You know, it really required a lot of critical thinking from an academic lens, but it was also critical thinking about um, the system that put together my family and um, my own experiences. And I think I'm on the older side of Chinese adoptees. And so growing up, I was oftentimes the mentor or older adoptee. And I didn't really have older adoptee mentors that I could look up to. And so that class was the first time that I had a relationship with. Um, an older adoptee, my professor. uh, And I also, for the first time, really had a peer friend group of adoptees. And I think when that class ended and school let up for the semester, I really um, was still in the middle of processing all the information that I had been learning that semester. And I started my blog as a way to um, release some of my feelings as well as continue learning, reading, processing, Um, adoption media and adoption content that I was seeing um, now in a new lens because of that class and so I really started it for myself and never imagined that um, it would be seen by as many people as it has been Um, or I guess yeah I don't know if I envisioned that nearly like eight years later I would still be writing on it but I am. (laughs)
1: I I tried writing blog as like a journal too, and it never. I finished. I stopped like after a month. I know how hard it is to actually continually writing, and I do with my friends a lot. But I don't know. Eight years. That's a long time. <laughs> um, I know the pandemic has probably changed uh, everybody uh, this year, twenty twenty. But um, has anything changed from your work that you've been doing? I know a lot of times you do it. Over the internet, and we talked it right before the podcast. You were, you were um, that you've been doing almost exact almost similar to how it was for the uh, con the uh, conferences and how you advised that. Only thing is the conferences being virtual. But has anything changed to like let's say your school? I know your master's um, uh, master's uh, level and your research and going on or anything that you've been doing like actual like outside of a house and doing all the work. Has anything changed?
2: Um, yeah, I think you're right. A lot of my adoption advocacy has been on virtual platforms, either through my blog or other, um, online channels. I think that, um, you know, I have gone to several conferences in person to speak on panels. And so that's not happening right now during COVID. But, um, I think that we all are getting more comfortable with this, um, web technology uh, and utilizing that more. Um, My classes are uh, for the most part online. uh, And I know that next semester they will be entirely online. I think that um, my research, you know, we've been collecting data in person and now we've also had to switch into the online world of um, focus groups and, you know, they're, yeah, there's like new barriers that way, um, but I think that yeah, a lot has shifted. Um, but like everyone, you know, we're just trying to figure out how to adapt to the the new situation that we find ourselves in.
1: Oh, absolutely! Because our school is starting to we uh, we were thinking to go on campus earlier this semester, but then it quickly changed after like two two weeks before we started. We went to completely online and spring semester is going to be online. So it has changed quite a lot. Um, I would, I'm going to go deep a little bit more into kind of like this year, how it has affected you. Um, This earlier this year, before we started the semester, uh, our group, our APAC group, um, board members has talked about a lot about um, Asian hated speeches online and social media. um, That, I have a personal experience with that. Uh like when I went to um when I because my parents are in the East Coast, and when we went there, like when I went to grocery store, I like called names, like wearing a mask and going around when pandemic first started. Um uh, do you uh do you have any uh stories or how has that like have you tried um like talk to other people? Like uh, how what's your stand on that like problem let's say has happened? has happened before. I don't know if it's, it still is a problem, but it's not, it's kind of an underlying, I know it's not the center of uh, center of attention right now, but.
2: Yeah, I think that um, it definitely isn't getting as much media attention as it did in the spring, but I think you're right. That doesn't mean that um, the issue uh, has gone away. You know, we still have a president who's using China virus and Kung flu. I feel um, very lucky personally that in this past year, since the pandemic started, I haven't um, had any direct encounters of um, like pandemic related microaggressions or experiences, but I think that um, because of uh, the, just like knowledge of this really heightened uh, anti-Asian racism, I think I would say that I have just like a personal heightened level of like vigilance and um, You know, just precaution when I do go outside. Um, And I think uh, for adoptees and Asian adoptees in particular, I'm really interested in seeing how the um, anti-Asian sentiment around the pandemic um, is going to potentially influence identity development. I think a lot of white adoptive parents I've talked to a lot of white adoptive parents who still subscribe to like a colorblind ideology and don't necessarily acknowledge their child's race. Um, And I think that, you know, that's a huge setback to an adoptee of color um, if they're not prepared to deal with racism that will happen to them. And so I think that that'll be really interesting um, in this group of like coming of age adoptees, how just, this growing up in this experience of like, just hearing about anti-Asian violence near daily during a certain time period will impact that. I also think that um, adoptees, because we grew up in white families and oftentimes white communities tend to be very racially isolated. um, And we might not have people, friends or family who understand when we go through these like microaggressions or racial experiences and another thing that I've been thinking about with the pandemic is um, since adoptees have already lost one set of parents um, just the visibility of the um, mortality um, globally and what that might do um, in terms of like increasing maybe anxiety or fear of losing their adoptive parents.
0: I guess going back to um you saying how like this pandemic can like affect like the growing like identity that people form. Like I guess like a personal anecdote that I would share is um, uh like when I would like bring food like to eat like at lunch, like my parents would say like don't bring that because that's stinky, right? So mm-hmm. like even in, in that case, like I, I just wonder like how like that would turn out for like an adoptee, like you know like I guess it's like a coping mechanism or like you know survival skill to like you know try and fit in with the group. Mm -hmm. Would you you agree?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I definitely think that um, one approach to coping with all of the anti-Asian racism for some adoptees might be trying to, like, push that side of their identity away and, like, conform or, um, just like, fit into the white, um, like, normalcy of whatever setting they're in. Um, Yeah, I definitely could see that.
0: No, for sure.
1: I I just wonder, like I even see it for my brother. I, I he's I, like me and my brother are not adopted, but like even just like let, even like I I just can't kind of get my mind through how hard would it be for an adoptee as like how you said like forming their identity because he is already having trouble like going like all from friends and where he he's we are still in the uh, primary like white community uh where he goes to high school and it's he meets like asian friends and like church or he goes to like play basketball with like all like all his asian friends but then he gets kind of pulled away because of this pandemic right out of that community um where he can talk to an adult or talk to his uh older we like in korean like older brother right um and talk and talk to and then he's just at home not doing like just with the family or and just doing online classes he I can see that he, already him just getting anxiety and yeah I God that um pandemic has hit quite a lot actually <laughs> um I can definitely tell and even seeing our APEC members it's quite a lot yeah uh let's go with the different i don't know how to segue from that let's say (laughs) let's go into it next question next question going into it oh we're cutting this whatever that's fine (laughs) cutting this baseline um so because you talked about how the Asian adoptees like they're growing up Asian adoptees currently are getting affected with the Identity forming um, and staying uh, staying in their parent uh, only in the house and not being able to go outside and all that stuff for the pandemic. I just want to kind of know how you developed your identity when you were growing up as an adoptee and kind of segue to a little bit, a little more lighter now, right? (laughs) So uh, I want to talk about that. Yeah.
2: Sure. Um, Well, that's like a really long story, but I think that I was adopted when I was three. And so I had some basic Mandarin, like body parts and animals. And um, and my dad had learned some um, Mandarin to communicate with me. Uh, and I think that my parents really did try to keep me as culturally connected as they knew how to. Um, I grew up going to Saturday morning Chinese school, but I was from a like, medium-sized Midwestern city where there really wasn't, like, a huge interest in Chinese school, so it was pretty rudimentary and would start at, like, ni hao idea, and like, every year, so it, it was, like, no real progression um, but I did get to see, like, other Chinese adopted kids and, like, Chinese faces there and um, my parents, you know, they gave me, a, like, a hongbao, like, a lucky envelope every Chinese New Year and we went to um, culture camp in the fall every year for other Chinese adoptive families, um, but I oftentimes really describe uh, my initial racial identity as more of this like pan Asian identity because it really was more of a self taught one. My parents um, are white and they 're of like Polish and Welsh ancestry, and um, you know we would watch like documentaries or things about China, but I think when I was young the few like Asian friends that I had I would see like similarities and maybe some of the things that their families would do and I would just tuck that in the back of my head it's like oh like this must be an Asian thing and so you know I accumulated these like Asian things and then um, when I was in college I was a Chinese major and international studies major and I was an Asian studies minor and an American studies minor and I feel like really all of these majors and minors were just like my identity that I was like trying to figure out. <laughs> um, and so I think that college was really formative because it was the first time where I was able to really dive into like my Chinese identity and Chinese history and film and writing. and. Um, but I think college was also really formative because I remember um, walking around Minneapolis, St. Paul, and feeling like a new level of vulnerability because back home, uh, you know, people knew me as my parents' daughter. They knew, they had some context for me. But when I was in this new city, no, there was no context. People just saw me as an Asian, I don't even know if they saw me as an Asian American person, as this Asian person. And um, they didn't know that I was like, oh, like, you know, I... I was like this adopted person and I look Asian, but I really like felt a lot more white at first. And um, and so I remember that um, really clearly. And I think that, I think, you know, yeah, I, I guess being in college, being away from my parents, being able to study Mandarin and Chinese and go to China for study abroad. I think that, that time period was um, what most solidified my racial identity.
3: I have a question. Yes. Um, Do you have any advice for maybe somebody who is younger and um, is going through that process of trying to find their identity and who they are? Um, Maybe they haven't hit college yet, so they can't take classes or maybe their parents don't, I don't want to say help, but like maybe they don't encourage it. Do you have any advice?
2: Yeah, um, that's a good question. I think that my advice would be to, um, I guess like, you know, it's really not fair, um, but in that case, adoptees, like we have to be proactive about um, culture keeping or learning. And I think that, for a lot of people you know for perhaps like children of immigrants culture and um you know where they fall in this like Asian American culture it's more of this like opt out process of like they've been they've grown up in this like asian household and then they decide how much they want to like keep or opt out of and for adoptees it's much more of this opt in process and we have to really seek that out um so I would sit dressed for a younger person who maybe didn't know um, how to talk to their parents about wanting these aspects of their identity or um, yeah, didn't does, doesn't know where to turn. I would say um, something even as basic as like language apps on your phone as like a basic way of. Um, starting that language process there are some you know where you can like chat with people native speakers there are some where you can just like word of the day and for some people that might be enough um yeah. i think that there are also there are also a lot of um really good adoptee communities online on facebook groups um you know there's subtle asian adoptee traits uh, china's children international um, there's a big cohort of adoptees on Twitter, um, and then you know blogs like mine and um, others that have been around for even longer. I think that um, that like starting to look at those groups or blogs um, might also be a really good entry point into um, um, yeah, like discovering Asian American identity or adoptee identity. And I think there are a lot of good, like, book recommendations and film recommendations and things that um, happen in those spaces.
3: Thank you.
1: I wanted to ask. Let's um, in when there is a. I'm sure everybody has trouble with their parents, but um, it's it's hard. I feel like for an adoptee to bring up a problem. To their parents more um, because they are brought into different identified uh, parents. So, not their birth parents. So, there's a, I think there's some kind of disconnect, right? Um, I feel. How I, and I've read a lot of books onto it because my friend is an Asian adoptee and he's been dealing with a lot of his, with his parents uh, going through college and actually working, getting out of the house and all that stuff. But there's a lot of books about parenting. I read, countless things about parenting but what could a kid like let's say adoptee a kid can do to um, I guess smoothly bring up a problem or how would they be how would they uh, face that problem with the parents and like interact with them more rather than arguing over because arguing is never an answer right so
2: yeah oh this is really tricky I think uh, you're right there is a level of disconnect, I think, with um, predominantly white adoptive parents, and when they adopt like children of color, and just obviously that understanding that um, a person of color, child of color, um, they will experience the world differently than their white adoptive parents, and as much as um, adoptive parents love um their children there are some things about their identity and their experiences they will just never be able to fully understand and i think that can be hurtful um to parents and i think another major challenge for adoptees is um this expectation that society puts on adoptees that we are supposed to be grateful and a lot of adoptive parents have that mentality as well that like they have perhaps rescued their um, child from a third world country Um, and so it puts this this other level of like uneven power um, into that relationship that might make those um, like negative feelings or instances of racism like harder to bring up if someone knows that their parents are just have a mindset that's like you should just be happy that you're here and um, so I think that for an adoptee who wants to uh, bring up an issue with um, the parent, I think that...
1: It's okay. Take your time.
3: <laughs> yeah. I, a hard I
1: think- question. It's a really hard question. I. I have a friend who is adopted and he found out he was adopted like when he was 19 when he went to college mm-hmm. and that was a huge I guess as soon as that happened when he had a hard time bringing a problem and he's still figuring it out how he's going to talk about how he's going to pay for his dorm and <laughs> and I, I try to even help him but it's hard it's it's a it's a hard uh, question so yeah. it's
2: okay. well I'm really glad to hear that you're being a supportive friend of this person and maybe that's the piece of advice I would offer is uh, it can be really hard to have these conversations especially when you know that they might not go well so if there's a say friend or family member that um, an adoptee could practice some of the what they want to say um, that might be um, a suggestion. I think another might be um, I think like when you, you know, when you've got a lot of feelings, sometimes you just want to like release, but that doesn't always translate into understanding um, or empathy for from the person that you were trying to get that from. And so it can be really frustrating. It can feel really slow, I think, to take a more like maybe educational path Um, and it really, you know, it shouldn't be the burden of like people of color or adoptees or whoever, like whatever the marginalized identity is. But I think that um, one way that, um, that might be more digestible if a parent seems very resistant is just um, like a slow introduction to um, maybe some of these like, thought-provoking blog posts or um, other like types of media that um, maybe are gently worded but might just like put a little plant a little seed of like there's more to it than just this one-sided happy narrative.
1: I I just think that Right, doing with your parents and like, especially arguing over some kind of problem is always difficult. Even if who who even if who you are, right? Just confronting a, confronting your parents is just a hard task to do. But mm-hmm. I don't know how it would feel, right? I I'm not an adoptee, so like that confronting your parents, who is there's a disconnect, and there you're not like that. Your parents is not your birth parents, and that they don't if especially if they don't understand your culture, right? That's that must, that's very difficult. Um, I wanted to ask, what are some resources would a young teenager or college students like us can look at it, uh, look at to maybe get a supportive community that is uh, supporting um, other Asian adoptees having problems or um, that we can help other Asian adoptees, let's say if they're looking for somebody to listen to or things like that. Because everybody needs somebody to listen to, right? Because <laughs> you want to just rant out all their pro- all, your, all your problems because you can't do that all the time.
2: Yeah, I think that, um, like I mentioned earlier, I would really recommend joining like some Facebook groups, the Subtle Asian Adoptee Traits, China Children International, oh. that's like, like, if you're a Chinese adoptee, I think, you know, there's a Facebook group, Transracial Adoption and Transracial Adoption Perspectives. Um, there are a lot of really good books. Uh, a recent ish memoir is Nicole Chung's All You Can Ever Know. She's a Korean adoptee. Um, so yeah, I would really look for adoptee authored um, books and literature. I think um, Jane Jung Tranka's The Language of Blood was one that I read when I was in that class. And then um, there's also an anthology called Outsiders Within. Um, which is edited by Jane Chung Tranka. And that's a pretty seminal piece in adoption literature. Um, I can like send you some of the resources that I recommend that I have on my blog later. Um, There are a lot, but there are, there are a lot of, um, you know, adoptees on Instagram, Twitter, uh, all of these things, but you have to like search adoptee type, um, hashtags or uh, yeah. things to bring them up uh, because the the dominant adoption um, like media is the like adoptive parents and adoption agencies. For I sure. mean
0: yeah. those um oh yeah sorry. No, um, go, ahead, LJ. Go, ahead, go ahead go ahead. Grace's um like information or like things that she will send will be in the description below if on YouTube or it's going to be in the description for Spotify. So take a look at that. If you guys are interested, Chris.
1: Oh yeah. I, I was just like, uh, so, because like social media, I don't even use social media, but I know social media is very, very useful. Um, onto is, uh, I know I've seen some of the Instagram posts that, uh, we've been putting on for, uh, like podcasts and all this stuff. And they actually recommended more into, um, a more different adoptee, uh, Speaker saying like the quotes or the like YouTube videos, and I, I would really recommend like reading those because I, while I was talking with Catherine, like Grace, you know, um, she gave me a bunch of other resources as well, and I'm def, uh, I'm definitely gonna look into it. I, it, more you dig into this topic, I think you learn more, and not just about adoptees. I think you understand just more about. Um, different aspects that people have a confusion over identities, right? Um, That it's not this like, sure, like that problems we say for like adoptees are having that disconnect with the parents, but I feel like anybody could feel that as well. Like I like there at some point of your time in teenage or older adults or younger adult times that you might feel that disconnect into family, uh, siblings or anything. And I'm sure it's another level with the adoptees, but I just wanted to kind of uh, go into people who are not adoptees in the community. Um, so I know we talked about earlier. I don't know if we actually talked about while we were recording, because <laughs> I get confused because uh, we were talking before LJ came in. But um, hey, uh, I know your, a lot of your work is online and you've been doing it. Did I ask this during the pand- uh, d- during the podcast we were recording?
0: Uh, yeah, Sarah. the pandemic kind of. Or I, I was because uh, I was gonna
1: ask like what she does what she does outside uh like right now during the pandemic as like to bring more people to it. Did I already say it?
0: No, um we can go into that, yeah, because we were mostly focusing on about like school for grades. <laughs> definitely like continue, Chris. You can that's good. Oh man, that's uh Oh <sighs> you know, there's Is a that, lot of questions.
2: What I'm uh, doing to stay occupied in the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah well school keeps me pretty occupied <laughs> but With everyone yeah i do enjoy painting um, oh, yay! and it's been a really lovely fall so my roommate and i have taken a lot of after school walks and that's kind of our transition to like we're finishing school in our apartment and now we are transitioning to homework time in our apartment um we cook a lot my roommate and I and I really like that and what else am I doing in this time um, I w- yeah I would say school work my research fellowship and then my practicum this semester is with a child um, like a children's grief agency working with kids and their families um, who have lost someone and so um,
1: you know, that keeps me safe. I, the part, I know with masters as a master's student, you're like, well, you're really busy, right? I mean, it's a master's student. I've, I've been through master school as well. So, I'm uh, like, it's, has it, um, working with, the, like, the child agency and things, has that, uh, I know, you, did you just start master's school or is this, like, you were doing it before the pandemic started or...
2: Yeah. So this is my second year of my MSW and I'll graduate in May.
1: Okay. Uh, so like how, um, it's kind of off topic, but I just, I, I'm just curious, but <laughs> how, uh, how has that changed since, cause like, I know you said you're getting more, um, like the uh, data's from, uh, like virtually and getting it, uh, getting from that, but that I've is like working with a child agency, a grief, uh, grief agency is that like also getting a data or is it you're just is it a completely different work that you're doing for masters
2: yeah so there i'm doing um you know like bereavement groups with children uh over zoom which is not ideal
3: um
2: but i i was with um the children's division um social services child protective services last semester and that was in person for the first half and then online the second half. And so I did have some um, idea of like what normalcy would be there. Um, But I entered this practicum position in the midst of the pandemic. And so all of my work here has been virtual. Um, But yeah, for the children's grief organization, um, yeah, I'm leading um, like bereavement groups for children and an adult one as well um i'm part of like a high school group and then i also do some like anticipatory grief um visits with children who um whose parent has a terminal diagnosis and so just kind of preparing them uh with coping skills and um
1: So under the school, uh, like, let's say, when you finish your master's, are you thinking to kind of combine the how you're working, like social working and the where you work outside of the school and like being, uh, getting more um, information about Asian adoptees and their, uh, and their resources and cultures? Are you trying to combine that into kind of work in that field? Or are you trying to think completely different? Because maybe I'm wrong.
2: Yeah, I feel really lucky in that um, I've been able to embed adoption into most of my coursework um, through papers or projects, Um, and I think that part of my rationale for um, my practicum experience at this child grief agency is that um, I think, you know, so children's grief when someone dies is oftentimes disenfranchised, and then adoptees, their grief and loss over their first parents, culture, language, all of those losses that are inherent with adoption are also, I would say, disenfranchised and um, stigmatized. And so I think that understanding how children grieve the loss of a parent is really um, part of my advocacy work in um, preventing unnecessary losses of parents for children um, through adoption. And so my long-term goal, uh, I see, I think that I'll probably work in the field for a couple of years. And then my goal is to go back for a PhD in social work um, and really delve deeper into these issues of, you know, like the adoption system, um, global deinstitutionalization, um, adoptee identity development, um,
1: Absolutely um, how long do we have until we finish? <laughs> I'm just I'm just checking the clock because I always I wanted to ask one question uh, like before we end everything. Was it like we I know we talked quite a lot, but um to the audience, let's say if there's one thing that you would like to tell like say something about this topic like that is one thing that you want them to understand and learn about after listening to this podcast, can you just shortly briefly um, talk about it?
2: I think my one thing about adoption is that it's complicated. Um, The media, the like adoption agencies, society, likes to paint this image of adoption as this like triple win-win-win situation where birth parents who are struggling win because they don't have to raise this child. Um, Adoptive parents who can't conceive or want to have, A child win because they get like a child that's theirs and then adoptees win because we oftentimes in international adoptions we move from like developing countries to affluent countries and we have uh, we gain a family and um, it's just people tend to stop thinking right there but Adoption also necessitates a lot of loss. Um, and for a family to be created through adoption, one has to be broken first. And I think that um, we also have to look at what it means for families to um, be so desperate that they feel that their option is um, adoption or not raising their children. You know, we know that in orphanage, uh, in orphanages around the world, over 80% of the children there have one living parent, and it's poverty that is the leading cause of children um, being in orphanages, not a lack of desire of parenting. And I think um, adoption can be a good thing, can be a wonderful thing. But for these, like, 80% of these children in these institutions, like, what would it look like if instead of pouring all of this money into adopting one child, how far could that money go in supporting those families and staying together? And I think my fundamental belief is just that poverty should never be a reason to separate a family.
1: That's awesome. everybody. I love it. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Does anybody have a question? Because I did like cut in really fast and like try to cut the, like try not to keep the audio spaced out. Uh, I know Sarah, you asked a question. LJ and Lauren, if you have anything. before you. End.
3: Um, oh, should I not ask a question then? No,
1: no, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. It was just like, I was just like asking people.
3: Okay. Um, so we were briefly talking about like family dynamic and, um, the win-win-win like situation. Uh, you don't have to answer if you don't want to, if this is too personal, but are you, how do you feel about adopting in the future? Like, do you want to adopt or do you feel obligated to adopt? Or, yes.
2: Okay, um, I think, you know, when I grew up, when I was growing up, I thought that I would have biological children and that I would adopt. And I think, you know, I was adopted. Adoption was something that was just normalized to me but as I learn more and more about um, just the power imbalances in the adoption system, I think that at this point I could not ethically adopt a child internationally at least. Um, I think that on the one hand adoptees might be the like best positioned to raise adoptees, but I think that um, adoptees who do choose to adopt and who are involved in the adoptee community and have an awareness of um, just all of the complicated um, aspects of the adoption system really have to be prepared to answer to their child, like why they chose to engage in this process if they knew how much corruption was a part of it, if they knew how much loss and identity like fragmentation and um grief were a part of it and so I think that um you know it's it's obviously a very very personal choice to um each individual but at this point in my life I don't see myself adopting but it was something that I had considered at one point.
3: I kind of thought that I am uh, I was adopted um, and I also am struggling with that because people will ask me that exact same question like oh since you're adopted like are you gonna adopt yourself and I'm, and I haven't heard that perspective before I haven't honestly looked too much into the adoption process and like what corruptions there could be um, but thank you for bringing that to light because I did not think of that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that each country um, has, I mean, there is like the Hunan scandal in China from like 2004, and I know that a lot of Latin America has shut down. Vietnam had shut down at one point for corruption, and then they opened up again in 2015. Ethiopia's closed their adoption program, and I just feel like when the same issues of corruption, trafficking, exploitation happen... Around the world, in each of the different locations, it's not a country-specific problem. It's a problem with the way the whole system is operating. And so, my opinion, there needs to be a big overhaul. But um, yeah, yeah, I think it, it's complicated. It's all—it's adoption. It's complicated. I—I <laughs> uh, I saw your last name, and I was wondering if you were an adoptee. Yes. Two. Yeah.
3: Yes. I.
2: At one point in college, I had created this list of like the telltale signs someone's adopted. They have like a white last name, but of course I'm getting to an age now where people, you know, are getting married. So it could be a married name, but. Oh, no, no. (laughs) They're like Chinese and in an elementary Chinese class. um, If they're Chinese and Jewish, that's like one of my signs.
3: Hmm. Yeah, no, it's very, people look at me and they're like, Oh, you have two last names. And I don't, I feel almost obligate, obligated to be like, I was adopted. Tw- like, I don't know. Like, I mean, maybe I should just be like, Oh, that's just how it is. But I, for some reason in me, I feel like I need to explain myself. So
2: yeah. yeah, I don't know. I feel like I would encourage you to think about that. I think um, I definitely resonate. I think that um, for me, like, I really can't explain my identity without including that I'm adopted. You know, I'm Asian American, but like, my adoption colors that Asian American experience for me. Um, but I also realize, you know, adoption is like, it's also a very intimate detail of my life. Like, when someone finds out I'm adopted, they find out a lot of other things at the same time. And so, um, it's something that like, Not everyone needs to know. And I think for me, when I like determine when I'm gonna tell people I'm adopted, I kind of use a like, is this person gonna be in my life for a long time? Does this person actually care about me? Or is this person just like someone curious in the aisle at the grocery store? Um, Mm -hmm. And then I've I've learned to feel okay leaving people like feeling awkward and confused.
0: No, oh, definitely, because it's like a piece of yourself that like you have to like selectively like give to a person. So that's definitely understandable. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So with that, um, anyone else have any other questions before, to, before we wrap this up? All right, well, let's give a hand of applause for Grace, our first a speaker on the podcast. Um, Grace, did you have anything you want to promote besides like the resources that you um, told us about? Um, we'll, we'll definitely put it in the description. It'll be on Spotify. So,
2: I also really um, I noticed on your Instagram that you would called it, and earlier in the in the recording as well, um, you called it National Adoptee Month, and I really appreciate that because um, you know I think that adoptees we really are trying to take back this month, Absolutely. Um, which is like, yeah. So thank you for that.
0: Definitely. <laughs> So As always, I've been your host, um, LJ Galdo. I am your historian. He, him, his is my pronouns.
1: Uh, I'm Chris, <laughs> he is a former programming chair. I'm going to be gone after this, but yeah.
3: Uh, Lauren, she, her. <laughs> and Sarah, she, her. <laughs>
0: for sure um this is gonna be a little difficult because christine and janelle are not here but follow us on the socials um apac ilstu uh snapchat instagram um group me can probably just message one of us um we'll definitely get that to you so yeah this is the end of that pod of this podcast so
3: see you guys